We gotta go to the bullpen. Welcome to the Highland Bullpen, the all-new podcast bringing America's pastime to Scotland shores. It doesn't matter if you're a Hall of Famer heading for Cooperstown or you're fresh out of the minor leagues, this is the podcast for you. Welcome baseball fans, wherever you are, and this week on the Highland Bullpen Baseball Podcast, we've got a grand slam of a show for you. We've got Baseball Scotland Hall of Famer Jason Dare joining us for a fantastic interview and he's also going to help out in the 7th inning stretch quiz. Following the recent passing of St Louis Cardinals legend and all-time base-stealing great Lou Brock, Bases Loaded features the bullpen bros discussing what makes a great base-stealer and what are the rules behind this mysterious art. And in the first of a new feature, Junior's Journal... Dave Jr. takes a look at some of the weird and wonderful happenings in the world of baseball. The world of baseball is mourning another legend of the game. Lou Brock, the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame outfielder, who was legendary for his ability to steal bases. Lou passed away at the age of 81, and his legacy is not just an incredible all-round baseball talent with the stats to back that up, but he was also the man who broke Ty Cobb's long-standing record of 892 stolen bases. Now, he managed that in 1977. Now, stealing bases is obviously an important part of baseball. It's a way to effectively get advanced freely, so it's very valuable. Now, the art of stealing bases, when to do it, when not to do it, how it works, that's an area that I, as a rookie to the sport, still need to, to brush up on but Dave Senior you bring a lot more experience and I think you've got a bit to say about the world of stealing bases. Well I do remember seeing uh, Ricky Henderson is the the famous uh, base stealer and you know when Channel 5 started showing the games in the late 90s he was, was getting towards the end of his career he operated between uh, I looked it up today in 1979 and 2003 so I, I think it was in his early 40s when by the time and he was still the speed it would probably put him on as a pinch runner if it was a tight game to try and get that stolen base and as I saw him mentioned today in the, an article uh, it's an MLB article it was referring to it started off with who are the, the best team in New York currently and they were sort of uh, suggesting that the Blue Jays referring to the state of New York presumably quite mis- mischievous but quite Quite funny, and they, they were behind in a game yesterday or the other day, and uh, then they went on a scoring spree and scored 10 runs in an inning, which was the highest number of runs they scored in a decade, almost a club record. And um, they hit a grand slam, the walks had everything, and the guy said, even Vladimir Guerrero Jr. stole a base. And I thought, this must be unusual, and he's a big guy. I looked it up, I think he's about six foot two and 18 stone, so he's not necessarily built for speed. It might be difficult to stop once he gets to his stride, but he further jokes saying that he was now only 1,405 stolen bases behind Ricky Henderson. So I presume that was his only, his only, his only one. But um, it, it just shows you, I think, you know, that, that record of 1406 
Uh, Lou Brock is next with is under a thousand. So this this guy Ricky Hannaford was absolutely phenomenal in in the art of uh, stealing bases. What what I read this morning was that I didn't realise this that you have two types of stealing bases or leading up to stealing base, and that you have a a walking lead or a stationary lead. Every time I've seen somebody try to do it, they've sort of ran on a few yards and stood there, then waiting for the the pivotal moment at which they're going to try and steal the base. But Lou Brock apparently was a walking lead to steal a base, so he would actually start walking. And, and the reason he would start walking, it might be similar to the chap you're talking about there, was that he was of a, a build. I think he was quite tall, so the view was that he would be able to accelerate into a sprint better if he was starting walking rather than being what I'd have considered the more traditional stationary. So you walk two or three yards and then you, you go and do the stationary bits. So that, that was interesting to me, particularly when the guy is, what, second in the all-time list. Uh, so quite, quite amazing. Yeah, I've noticed on the, on the games now, they're actually showing you well, some of the, um, uh, the recordings of games. They actually will switch to the first base if there's a guy on base and they'll show you how far he's he's already got away from the bag you know sort of 12 feet or 10 12 feet seems to be about it before the pitcher will sort of try and pick him off to use the the baseball parlance henderson would have been the type who would try and you know i think he was quite a wee guy very you know on his toes and will probably try and steal a, a few feet and then get a jump rather than walk into it. It's quite difficult, isn't it? It's a long way, isn't it? 90 feet. Yeah. You know, sometimes they just decide to go, don't they? Um, depending on the pitch count and the situation of the, of the game. Other times they're just looking for not exactly a wild pitch, but, you know, an opportunity to steal a base at, um, you know, when they think it's appropriate. Dave Junior? Yeah, I've always found it really fascinating it's I think it's definitely one of the more interesting parts when you're watching a baseball game whenever you're whenever you're watching I think it stealing bases almost it knits a lot of moments together in baseball or the, the potential to steal bases you've always got I'm sure that every team's got one or two guys that probably excel I know that the White Sox are looking at maybe Tim Anderson and, and Lewis Robert who, who are you know again speed merchants really really quite good quite nippy and they tend to find themselves on, on first base anyway I love watching it happen I love watching them just edge their way again there's something fantastic about watching a guy on first second or third base waiting to receive the ball so that they can tag them but there's just a couple of points about stealing bases which it's not that they don't sit well with me it's just that I don't understand them if I'm being honest so again, when you can and can't, because uh, it also seems like if you need to tag someone, would that be right? If you are trying to catch someone, do you need to tag them? You can't just, as a, let's say you're in second base and the guy's running from first base, you need to tag that runner. It's not just about having your foot on base and yes, receiving the ball. That's true. I think um, there's a difference between not just stealing bases, but a force out you know, when a guy is forced to leave the base because he's on first base, the guy gets a hit. So if he is forced to move to the next base, then to be out, you just have to catch the ball and step on the bag. You don't have to tag him out. If the batter decides to advance to the next base at his own risk, he doesn't have to. He's not moved on by, you know, a base runner behind him. Then I think he needs to be actually tagged out. 
Again, it's something that's is quite interesting. I know we like to bring things back to football and, and Scottish football as well. Um, in the last few weeks, I've noticed quite often that they'll go to New York to make sure if there's been a tag, they'll go and sort of marry up two different video angles to make sure that the guy's foot or the tag that have happened at exactly the same time. So you'll have two videos from completely yeah. different angles. They'll marry up the timestamp. They'll go to New York to perhaps get a, a VAR, a third opinion, and take it from there. But I think that's quite an interesting use of the videos as well. I mean, quite often, a lot of the calls go against what you would think. Um, so yeah. perhaps it's not just in football that there seems to be a lot of controversy around video assistance. I think the uh, the traditional sort of bang-bang plays, they sort of, you know, if they arrive at the same time, should should it favour the runner? But, you know, now, of course, with replays and that, they do, that doesn't, tend to happen is either is either in or is out but yeah stealing a base you've also you steal in second third base or or even home just, you know i don't know whether that happens so much these days but jackie robinson i think was one of the guys who uh, would steal home base but you've got to stay on the bag haven't you it's not like first base if you get a hit you can actually you just have to touch the bag you can run past first base but if you're stealing or going to second or third base you have to actually be on on the bag. If you move off the bag, and you can be tagged out. Yeah, yeah it was interesting when you you talk about stealing third or stealing home because I think I've, I've seen some of the iconic video of Jackie Robinson stealing home. A couple of things I found out when we were having a wee bit of research for this. So stealing third is logically easier than stealing second. The issue, well, one of the issues with stealing third is that there's a question as to why you would bother trying to steal third because you're effectively in scoring position. So the reason you would potentially look to steal it, I guess, would depend on the, the score of the game or, or what, what the nature of the game was at that point in time. But if you're in scoring position, you might think, why would I do that? And, and even more so with, with stealing home. And again, one of the other things I hadn't, it, it's obvious, but I hadn't quite appreciated is if you've got a left or a right-handed pitcher, if you've got a left-handed batter, sorry, presumably stealing third becomes, would that become a little bit harder as one, one way around the other way? Because the, it's an easier throw for the catcher then to get the ball to third base. So mm-hmm. you will then start considering who's, who's batting as, as to whether you're going to go and try that as well. It's such minute distances isn't it so any advantage or disadvantage you know I think that it would be a crime wouldn't it seen as a crime in a close game if you were trying to steal third base and you're caught out there yes you know especially with two outs something like that I don't think they would um, risk it as you say it's a good point they're in scoring position anyway a hit outside any hit outside by the infield and you mentioned there, Dave, round about the, the notion of like you're allowed to, to come off the bag a bit at first base. So you mentioned, I think, about 12 feet there, about 40 yards, 12 feet. Does that tend to be how far they come off? Well, that, that, that's how far, I think, when they're trying to steal second, that's how far I think they feel as though they can get a jump on the pitcher without the pitcher actually thinking, well, you know, he might be getting signals from the catcher. They, yeah, you need to try and pick off this guy he's, he's, he's encroaching too much or getting too far away if, if you if, if you're getting a hit and you're running to first base then the other point I was making was to to earn first base you don't have to stay on the bag so you see them they're running full pelt and they just have to hit the bag and they can run past it and mm-hmm. and they're safe but if if you're on first base and the batter gets a, a hit 
and you'll run into second base and the, the throw comes into the second baseman or the shortstop, then you can't run past that bag. You've got to stay on the bag. So that's why you see them sliding in. You don't see them sliding into first base. They run past it at full pelt, if, um, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. And I guess if you take that, that risk coming off the bag, say 12 feet or whatever in first base, you can be out a number of ways. The pitcher could be just so quick that he gets the, the ball over to first base before you can get back to first Absolutely. base. Or if you make it, if you make the boat for second and you see a catcher's got a powerful arm on him and get yeah. you out at second as well. So I love the cat and mouse bit of the pitcher keeping an eye on him to see if he's going to go, is he going to go, is he going to go? Because I believe the rule is once the pitcher starts the motion in which he's going to ultimately throw the ball, he can't then try and pick off somebody on base. Yes, they'd be, be in danger of, um, I think mean, they call it a bulk, don't they? Uh, yes. An illegal move by the pitcher. You know, which would advance all all base runners would advance one base. I think in a, in a ball. It's something that's yeah. I don't know if it's a bit unique to baseball at all, but if you think about it, just when we're talking about runners and making that split decision. You know, you, it does look as if you've got staff or coaches at first and third. So whenever, you know, if you've got players who are in a split second, got to make that decision, you've got that little bit of guidance there with somebody either just waving you on or giving you a stop sign. Uh, again, it's, I don't know if that's perhaps unique to, to baseball. I'm trying to think about other sports where you might have some help along the way. Maybe golf with a caddy might be the only one that, that jumps to mind. Caddy's role ends when you strike the ball, whereas in baseball you're rounding the base. And as you say, Dave Jr., the coach or whatever is waving you home. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, it's like continual. It's a good point, though. I hadn't thought of that before. But yeah, I think you're right. And, and in terms of stealing bases, just getting as basic as this, is it all about speed? Or is it speed plus judgment to know when you can? It's probably an element of, of speed plus judgment. And I think what I was saying there about the walks and the, the walking lead and the stationary lead, people are playing to their own strengths. But what, what I read was that the skill is in assessing the pitcher's movements, so understanding exactly at which point that pitching movement is starting and that he's not then going to turn around and, and create a bulk situation so you can then, then go and do that. One, one thing I hadn't appreciated, again, when reading up about this as well, was that um, a, a lot of guys are doing this not necessarily with the aim of stealing a base. But they're trying to wreck the focus of the pitcher mm-hmm. because the pitcher is then concerned about somebody stealing base. He's then throwing the ball to first all the time or whatever. I've, I've often wondered, is he using a little bit of energy there? Probably nothing like pitching, but you're, you're actually distracting his focus. So he's thinking about you on first base rather than the, the batter. So stealing bases, there has been an argument in recent years that baseball has become more about the big moments, the big hits, the home runs and stuff. But stealing bases seems to be more that legacy of just those little nuances and details, but that can make all the difference in a close game, you know, stealing bases, bunts, all that kind of stuff. The other things I love about baseball as well, I must say, I particularly love those little things that you don't see that often. Yeah, my my point in that would be that... (laughs) Until you start following baseball closely, you actually just thought those were stupid wee aspects of the game, but now you realise the importance of them. And here's one to finish this section with, guys. As you know, we do like to blend football with baseball, two terrific sports. If you had to choose one football player from your respective teams to steal a base for you from all of the football players you've seen in the flesh for your teams, who would you choose? Dave Jr., you fancy first lead off on that one? 
Oh, I was just thinking for Dave. Keith Wright would have been great. <laughs> Maybe it took half an hour to get there. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think some of the nippier players. Ryan Kent might be, I don't know if that's an obvious one for Rangers or not. Um, I think anyone with a, a speed merchant, really good agility, good enough feet. You're allowed to dip into the history books as well. Uh, oh, is that allowed? Yeah. So I was thinking of, I was thinking of potentially uh, a Danish Winger, yeah. a fairly recent oh. vintage. Vikorst. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly enough, no, no. I was thinking no, no. Rallon for me. God. Yeah. Actually, do you know what? I wasn't even thinking of that particular. I'm getting my Danish wingers mixed up. You've had so many good ones. I was Who's thinking of Peter Lovenkrantz. Was Peter Lovenkrantz yeah. not a, a speed yeah. merchant? Lovenkrantz had a bit of pace. Um, Loudrup. Loudrup is, for me, the best footballer I've seen in the flesh. So, and I was, I'm sure he would have the intelligence as well to work out what the pitcher is doing. Uh, I'm not going to doubt Dave's current first team choice of stealing a base there. He may be the fastest, whether he'd be the, would it be the sharpest possibly, a sporting brain. Loudrup had everything. Well, maybe his balance as well, get a great balance as well, didn't he? And maybe that would help when deciding well to get back to the bag or to make that, that break for it. What about the, the heroes of Elland Road over the years then, Dave Senior, who have been the, the speedsters that you would back to, to steal a base for your beloved Boston Red Sox? There wouldn't be anyone from the Reedy era because they're all on about 20, number six at Embassy Regal a day, but they're all, they're all smokers, aren't they? Billy Bender and Jack Charlton, there's famous pictures of them uh, smoking uh, <laughs> after, before and during games, I think. So. Well, one thing I would say about your Leeds United team of that era, I'd have backed them in a few kind of dugout brawls, though, Dave Senior, and I'd like to have a few of them with me then. Yeah, certainly uh, the wee man and uh, Johnny Giles could look after themselves, Norman Hunter, the Norman Hunter and Fanny Lee <laughs> set twos, uh, you know, were, were, were epic. Yeah, I was thinking of um, one guy quite, well, I say quite recently, it's probably within the last 30 years, recent for me, who played for both Leeds United and Rangers, who was very quick, Rod Wallace up front. Oh, yeah. I think he would have the, the profile to be, you know, a, Pretty nippy between between the bases, and uh, one of my favourite players, Duncan McKenzie, was uh, very agile. I could see him sliding or jumping into second base. Did he not do no some f- some famous feats, Duncan McKenzie? Something about that rings a bell with me. Yeah, he did. He did one or two sort of things with the cameras. I'm sure he could jump over a, a, a mini car and uh, sort of leapfrog over a post box and stuff like that. He was absolutely fantastic. One of the most naturally skillful players I've ever seen. Actually. I would pay good money, and I mean good money, to see, <laughs> any, see any of the bullpen pros attempt to leapfrog a postbook. Yeah, well, I once did it down, down, the, down Park Row after a night, night out in Leeds, and I was going down all the uh, parking metres and uh, doing, doing quite well. Until I realised uh, there, there was one that was slightly higher than the others, and uh, you know I took a bit of a tumble. Fortunately, you know you don't feel anything when you've had a few beers. <laughs> Alan, nineteen years old. Alan, how would you fancy your chances of jumping over a mini? Uh, I'd put that um, probably when you see all the, the sort of baseball stats about your team getting to the World Series at zero point zero zero percent. I think um, uh, that that's where I would. Uh, Put, put my, my position in there. 
Well, that seems reasonable enough, and you'll not be surprised to hear my chances to be even less than yours, Alan. But just to round off our selection of football players from who could potentially be good base dealers, uh, Celtic had a player in the Martin O'Neill era who actually played for Hibs as well, Dave Senior, a former Hibs player who Celtic stole off you for a mere £50,000, I think, Didi Agath. And oh, yeah. Didi Agath is the, the yeah. fastest player I've ever seen at Celtic, certainly in my lifetime. Yeah. I've got a friend who's a Rafe Rovers fan, and he tells the amusing story of a guy making his debut. I think it might have been against the Erdry, but I can't remember, but it was a lower division game, and they'd literally never seen the man of this pace in their life. And he said it was like a Benny Hill sketch. You had this guy dribbling from his own half, and like half a dozen Airdrie players trying to chase him in vain. I think he's got a hat-trick in his debut, but he certainly he could catch pigeons, as they say, he was... Pretty yeah, quick as well. A really pacey guy. R- Richard, do you have time to explain to our American listeners what a Benny Hill sketch would consist of? Well, you see, Benny Hill is actually quite big in, in the States, Alan. Benny okay. Hill was a, a big favourite over there as well. But yes, it's probably fair enough. Generally, there was uh, yeah, some kind of humorous misunderstanding or chase very often involving him chasing some woman who was quite mysteriously dressed as a French maid for reasons that were never clearly explained but the music was always great and it was uh, that passed for light entertainment in the 70s and 80s Alan we shouldn't knock it I think if the Highland bullpen can replicate the success that the late great Benny Hill enjoyed in the States I think we'll all be very pleased indeed Now the Highland bullpen is in its rookie season, but over at the excellent Ballcaps and Bagpipes podcast, they've already completed season two. Co-host Jason Dare is a legend in the world of Scottish baseball, a Baseball Scotland Hall of Famer who's done more than most to champion the sport during his almost two decades since he came over from America to Scotland. Welcome Jason and thanks for joining us today. Now regular listeners to the Highland Bullpen will know that I've got family connections to Washington State. I believe you also hail from the Pacific Northwest. I am from uh, just outside the Seattle area. That obviously explains why you're a fellow Mariners fan Jason, but I believe you've got connections with Portland as well. So I went to school down at Oregon State, so I was down in Corvallis, which is about an hour and a half south of Portland. So what first took you from there to, to this part of the world then Jason? Literally, the dot-coms crashed. There was just no work, and I was on a two-week holiday. And 17 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> and what what were you doing before that in, in the States then, Jason? Oh, so, so you guys are old enough. You'll actually probably remember this. I get a lot of the younger guys that are like, the real player? Uh, no, I have no idea what the real player is, but I used to work for uh, Real Audio, and uh, yeah. the real player were uh, the first people who did streaming um, sports content. So... Uh, funny enough, my first job with them was uh, listening to baseball games. Nobody else wanted it because the hours were terrible. And so I used to come in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and listen to baseball games all day. <laughs> the great job for a, for a baseball fan. The, the journey from there took you to, to Scotland. So what year did you arrive in Scotland then? 2003. And how long were you planning to stay for at that point? Or was it just to uh, see what happens? It was completely random. So I had uh, I came over to see a couple concerts. And I had met this friend show online, and we were big Chemical Brothers fans. And so uh, we came down and did London, Manchester, Dublin, back to London again, Winchester for a festival. And then we had like three days left, and I was trying to convince her to go to Paris because she's French. She speaks language. I want to learn anything. And she's like, I've always wanted to go see Edinburgh. And I was like, 
there's a castle, there's some sort of royal mile, <laughs> we'll go for the weekend, and that would be it. So Scotland wasn't even on the radar, uh, and then just came up on uh, one of those gorgeous days we get, just absolutely fell, fell in love with Edinburgh and just stayed. Now, Jason, you fell in love with Edinburgh, but I think Dave Jr. has actually just fallen in love with something else. So, Dave Jr., do you want to come in? First of all, before I even say a word, I would love a tour of what's behind you. I know this is an audio, <laughs> it's an audio podcast, but behind you is just, it uh, looks, I could spend days there. And so this is just old baseball cards. I just got all my old baseball cards shipped over, at least half of them there. And uh, I literally, in, I'm in a cellar that converted into my man cave. And so I, I was like, well, I got to do something with that. And so I just put all the cards up there. <laughs> it's beautiful. One of my all-time favorite baseball stories is the Mavericks. Right, yeah. If, if they'd kind of came across your radar, if they had any influence on you at all. So totally didn't. I mean, they were my only ball. Um, you're, you're looking at Portland's 180 miles south out there. So you had the Mariners and then you had the Tacoma Rainiers, which were at my time were the Tacoma Tigers. So you had like Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire looked at there. Uh, and then funny enough, it turns out when I went to uni, I didn't realize this till later. Uh, one of the girls I know, her dad was on that club for many years. So they were like, he pulled out all his stuff and showed it to her. I was like, yeah, I played in this independent <laughs> baseball team in Portland. And I was like, you never told me your dad played baseball <laughs> like that. So, But, I mean, what a cool connection that Portland had to that. And, you know, you had the Bat Boy and being kind of a critically acclaimed you know, uh, film producer there. I mean, yeah. I had no idea, you know, uh, Kurt Russell's dad was the owner. And Kurt Russell played for a season. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Taking it back even a further step. Um, how do how do kids in America get into baseball? Like over here for football or soccer, it's perhaps second nature for kids. Is baseball the go-to or the introduction to sports for American kids generally? Uh, you find that football is usually the one you get started there. Uh, okay. and everyone plays football. I played eight years of football uh, before I grew out of it. Uh, but what got me into baseball was uh, the 1981 Little League World Series. Uh, the, the team that won it was the... Uh, literally five miles down the road from where I'm from. So I was over, you know, overwhelmed by it. These guys had TV exposure. Uh, you know, they had a rock stars because it was the first time they had won the Lily World Series in like five or six years. And I was just like, wow, these guys are just literally just down the road. I can go see these guys and watch them play. Uh, and they had won the Lily World Series. Um, if you can find it, ESPN did a documentary on it. And they kind of went back and talked to those guys on there. Um, I'm pretty sure it's one of those 30 for 30s. Oh, that's such a good series. It really helps me learn a bit more about, about American sports as well. Just you know, on that note about growing up as a kid and, and trying to get into baseball, if you were a Scottish kid trying to get into baseball, are there ways that they can, a, a good pathway at all for kids or is it still really tough? It, it's really tough. So what usually happens, and it's happened to myself there, is you get someone that plays, then they have children, and then they try to get their kids involved. And you may get, <laughs> three or four kids involved and you're kind of like, well, okay, we can kind of do it. And then it usually falls apart because you just can't get enough people to go to the game. So mm-hmm. um, it's a tough one. You need people to volunteer for it. And that's always the struggle is getting people that are willing to put in the time. And then of course, like, you know, you do it over the summer and there's summer holidays and people go away. So, you know, during school time, even in the spring, it's tough to get kids involved because, uh, you know, we always put on free tasters, but, but uh, since it was free, we found people actually showed up less than when they paid because it was free. They didn't care if they missed it or not. Are there any things even like batting cages available in Scotland where you know for, for people just to try out, let alone you know adults or kids? 
Uh, no, I think there's down south. There's definitely a few places to go. Uh, we have plans to do so in Edinburgh. We were trying to get something involved, but it really just comes down to funding. That's always the hardest bit. There mm-hmm. is uh, uh, we've got a piece of land out here that we can actually can do stuff with, but to actually okay. get a cage that people come on down with, you're still probably talking probably cost you about five thousand, six thousand pounds to get something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's not cheap. I mean, we're lucky enough that we have a pitching machine that we got a grant for ten years ago that we can use, but the, actually just getting uh, something built just net-wise uh, adds up. It's not like you can take a cricket net uh, and put it up there and kind of use the same thing. You still have to put the back end of that. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it, you know, it made a huge difference to, to get that because that's the hardest thing there is people usually are so late to the game that you spend so much time trying to uh, get throwing up speed there and then to actually learn how to throw batting practice, uh, that's always the toughest one. Have you had a chance to go to a cage and try it yet? No, that would be that would be my next question if you'd had something. <laughs> Can we have a podcast be <laughs> well, out? <laughs> well, if you guys come down to Edinburgh, uh, I'll set you guys up, and we can you guys can go do batting practice one time. Oh, gladly, gladly. Jason, I have to admit, when I was over in Seattle before outside the game, there was this setup where it could you could try pitching. It was like sort of measured your pitching speed away, yeah. and I will never admit how low my best pitch was. There was like little girls coming by and hurling them quicker than I did. So I'll have to do a bit of work in my pitching arm, but it was a, it was a lot of fun trying. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny when you see those things. They, they, they raise the speed up there, so it's uh, it make you feel better about yourself. Um, I don't know if you saw the BBC Scotland thing on Sink or Swim about Doogie, who was a stone, stone skimmer. No. So I don't know if it's still on there. It came back on there. So Doogie got in touch with us years ago he's a i think eight time world champion stone skimmer and they were talking to stone skimmers that how hard they could throw this the stones and they, the guy reckoned he could throw at least 80 if not 85 miles per hour so we came on down and had gone with a radar gun and i think he got up to 68 69 that was the most he ever got up there we came back really disappointed because they all thought they could throw harder than they could Jason, they are just talking about as a child growing up and playing baseball. Now, obviously, we were at the London series, and one thing you didn't realise until you were there was just the sheer scale of a baseball pitch, how far the, the mound is from the back, how far back the fielders are. How does that work for little kids learning the game? Is, is the, the field scaled down to a certain size? Yeah, so it's uh, 90 feet between the bases and 60 feet, 6 inches from the pitching mound to the home plate. Uh, for a little league, they, they start you off at 45 feet, uh, and the coach usually pitches. I think you're about nine or ten year old before you finally actually have uh, somebody pitching to you that's not the coach. Uh, and then it scales up. At, once you get 12 year old, they go to I think it's 80 feet long, and then at 14 you're playing full at that point in time there. So you, you slowly gradually move into the, the distances there because yeah, it's, it's quite a big jump at first. So I guess, Jason, for you and, and for the long-standing members of Scotland's baseball community, it's about encouraging children, the next generation, to take part. But it's also about encouraging adults of, of any age to give baseball a try. So, you know, we're always just saying people come down there. We get a lot of people. I, I used to stop a lot of people on the street when they were wearing various team hats and say, hey, are you interested in playing baseball or not? Uh, I mean, if you look at what's going on on Twitter there, I mean, there's you know a good two or 3,000 people that use that. Uh, and most of them haven't actually played there. Uh, and you probably see them go out there and they're so worried about uh, trying to be at least decent when they go and they start things out. And, and you know, I, I always tell my new guys, 
baseball is a game of failure. If you fail seven times out of ten, you make the Hall of Fame. So, you know, <laughs> you just have to kind of just go, you're going to fail and you're going to fail a lot. And you just have to keep sticking with it. And once people kind of get that in their head, they go, okay, great. I'm, I'm not going to go four for four every day. I'm going to have these rough days there. Um, they usually stick around there. But I guess it's one of those things that you're, just, you're not used to failing so much. And, you know, and for a whole day and you say you go over four, you're going to go home and go, I didn't have a good day because I didn't do well at plate. And those taster sessions, Jason, where do they take place? So the, the certain venues for the taster so each team runs their own. Um, like I said, with Edinburgh, I think training – I think they're training on Fridays and Sundays, and it's just, you know, just need to go and, and go down there and show up. Uh, I know Glasgow just brought did some training sessions with uh, 16 and unders. So they just started that, and I'm not sure what Aberdeen's doing at the moment. Um, but literally, it's just open to anybody. You, you, you really just show up. If you, uh, if you don't have a glove or uh, boots or anything, it's fine. There's always someone that can provide you with something there. We're just trying to get people out in the field and get them to go. Uh, you already have an interest in it, so you might as well just come and play it for fun. Um, I mean, now it's much easier. I mean, when I came in 2003, we were watching games on Wednesday and Sunday nights, and that was it. So, and well, I think we are living proof that people can develop an interest in, in baseball, and actually, when you find baseball, it's a fantastic second sport for a lot of people in this country but I think we'd all urge everyone to give it a go in whatever way you can and as you say don't be scared if you've never you never played the game before just go down there and, and take part yeah absolutely like I said I mean at least you just go for the banter uh, there'll always be somebody that will give you a hard time about your team as, as long as you're not Yankees or Red Sox fan you're okay <laughs> well as we go on we'll reveal that that will be a problem for one of us but we'll narrow the field down it's not Alan Alan, you're going to come in. And, and just a chatting there, Jason, about the, the the little leagues and the taster sessions. C- can you tell us a little bit about the, the the full baseball Scotland league? Because one of the reasons the four of us are close is we just love going and watching sport together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did touch on briefly last year when we went to London and we we heard about the Scottish league. We thought actually this is something we should we should go and do and go and see. So. How, how accessible is, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's pretty accessible. What what can we expect to see? How do we turn up, expect, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, it's, it's absolutely accessible. Uh, you might, there's a good chance you might be the only people there watching the game. <laughs> we, we, we've been to football games where that's pretty much happens. So we, we, there's random football to be had. We've, we've managed to do that. So we're happy to do that with baseball as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've had times where we've had, uh, you know, close to like 50, 60 people that show up usually for like a 4th yeah. of July weekend game. We, we throw a big barbecue, so we can invite all the old timers on there. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Scottish government guidelines won't allow anyone to train at the moment. Or, yeah. There's no games right now, so um, I think they're only allowed eight people on the pitch at the same time right now. So uh, as soon as that eases up, then they can start doing something. But I mean... Uh, we, we always make sure that if you want to go down, we do the best to update. But you know, the games are on every Sunday. They're usually at one o'clock. Um, there are uh, two teams in Edinburgh, two teams in Glasgow, two teams in Aberdeen, and there's a team in Dundee, Kport this year. Um, and so I know they're all itching to get on the field and, and play some baseball. The Kport teams were, were going to be new this this year, and they were doing that, so they might still probably get the game or two in there. And it used to be a friendly game just to kind of get guys out there because it's it's been so long since the people have been on a train um, that you don't want to get anybody hurt. So and that's the problem there because 
we would normally start training in January despite the weather, and then you start your first game in April. I, I presume that's the, the Baseball Scotland Twitter feed would keep us up to date with what's going on. Is it a particular league Twitter yeah. feed? They usually put stuff on. Uh, it's probably Facebook. There's the website that's on there as well. Uh, it's just baseballscotland.com. Um, so they, they, they do the best to keep up there. There, you can, you know, if there's a team in your area, it definitely is more teams. Some teams are more active on Facebook than others. Um, most of the teams that are in the Scottish League will be active on Facebook and not Twitter. But then, if you want to follow MLB, everyone's on Twitter and not Facebook. So, so you're kind of stuck between both platforms. Do the teams, the Scottish baseball teams, have any allegiances to anything across across the waters, or do a few of the players or fans gravitate towards certain teams? I, you know, it really comes down to uh, where people have gone on holiday. So we'll find there's there's always a lot of Blue Jay fans. There's always somebody that has uh, Scottish relatives that live in Canada. Um, you, you find a lot of uh, Tampa Bay Rays fans because everyone goes holiday in Orlando, and so that's the nearest team to go see down there. And same with Miami. You get a lot of people that go, I go to Miami and I see Marlins games there. And then, of course, you'll have, you know, like uh, the Mets and the Yankees because you go to New York and go see a game for the first time there with Boston. So when you start going towards the Central and the West Coast, it's usually because they've been traveling or they have sort of some connection to it. Because um, I'm running the, the Mariners UK Twitter and I'm always like, how did you guys become Mariner fans? I mean, for me, it was easy. It was on my doorsteps. You know, it's like... I. <laughs> You're pretty hardcore if you get up at three o'clock in the morning to watch a game for three or four hours. And just to go through our allegiances as well, there, Jason. Obviously, I'm a fellow Mariner like yourself. Dave Junior is a White Sox fan. Right. Alan is a Detroit Tigers fan. And again, it's it's a lot of that has to do with the first place to visit in the states, I think, as well. And get ready for the pantomime booze here. Uh, Dave Senior is a Red Sox fan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was my first trip to America back in the 90s, uh, Boston. So uh, I always say that they're my nearest. When I lived in Scotland, they were the closest team to where I lived. You know what? I I have nothing wrong with, like, Red Sox and Yankees fans. The more everyone gets winded up there. I mean, I went to Fenway for – it was my dad's 70th birthday, and I had scheduled it because I got a 12-hour layover, and I got to go to Fenway and catch a game during that layover. (laughs) Um, so you know, Fenway is an amazing place. You know, there's so much history going behind that there. So, um, but you just kind of had everyone kind of jump on that bag one again in about 2004. <laughs> it's kind of gone there since. Yeah, well, I started supporting them in the 90s, so he's uh, <laughs> always keen to get that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might have a different perspective on this to us, Jason. When you're, you're obviously stopping people in the street and asking them to come for the taster sessions and get involved in baseball but as 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 um newbie baseball fans who've on, on the majority not chosen the big teams when when we walk along the street and we see somebody in a yankees hat cap we just sort of think they've just been to new york they probably don't even know it's a baseball cap do, does that engender the same feelings in in your head or do you see oh there's a fellow baseball fan uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely a fashion thing there. I don't know if you guys saw the MLB London thing where they went around and stopped people wearing Yankees and Red Sox hats. And uh, 
of course, they had no idea they were being like interviewed by a player because they just were not because of the fashion thing there. And, you know, and, and it's a huge brand. I mean, I never really thought it was a brand. I always thought it was just like, okay, it's the Yankees with the Red Sox there. But, you know, like, tons of people wear their stuff. You know, I've, I've stopped people before to say, hey, are you a Yankees fan? And they're like, what are you talking about? And other times it's like, yes, oh, man, Aaron Judge is the best and like that. And we're having conversations with him. So, I usually just kind of stop people just to kind of get some chat because there's so few of us over here that eventually you're going to find someone. Uh, and especially with me when I was running Baseball Scotland, I was just always looking for new players. So if you have any interest in baseball, they might want to join the team. And obviously if people are looking to get some really nice baseball merchandise, some really nice baseball clothing, there's a, there's a good option for them to take and that would be dugout classics. Yeah. I got frustrated not being able to get any jerseys or any stuff over here, or I was able to get stuff, but it was so expensive by the time I shipped it over. I think I bought uh, a San Diego Padres jersey for, I think I spent 150 pounds, and there was another 100 pounds by the time I paid shipping and import costs there. Then I was like, all right, you know, if I'm struggling to do this, everyone else would be doing that there. So I figured out a way how to get stuff over in bulk and keep the cost down, uh, and it's just just a labor of love. I said, I really enjoy all the kind of old jerseys there and, and, and meeting other baseball fans through it. Absolutely. And there's stuff there for, for kids as well. There's tons of great stuff there on that. So dugoutclassics.com. Correct. Yep, that's us. Fantastic. No, definitely I'll draw listeners to, to check that out. Great value and a great range. Now, Dave Senior, I think you're going to come in with a question. Yeah, I think Alan already mentioned that the four of us went to London last year, 2019. We've been on a few uh, sports trips before, but usually involved a day day on the train up to Inverness or Dingwall, if you're familiar with the Ross County. Um, So this was a a kind of a step up for us, and what a fantastic weekend we had. And uh, I don't know if you went yourself, but the City of London Stadium was transformed into a baseball park, and it was incredible really was a superb event um, and a superb place to stage it obviously we would have been there again this year we had we all had tickets to go again this year and it, it seems to have been a great success for MLB and looked likely that it would continue would you think that they would take it out with London um, you know possibly to the provinces of England but more importantly, do you think there would ever be a chance of it being played in Scotland, in Edinburgh or Glasgow? And, and if so, would would any of the stadiums or cricket grounds, for instance, be suitable? Oh, man, I would love for it to come up here. I just don't think there's actually a place they can do it. Um, uh, Murray Field, I don't think you could actually transform into it. I think it would be there. The, the rumors that I've been hearing is that it would go somewhere like Berlin or Paris and yeah. they have a stadium up there. So I, I think if they do it, the trouble is the game hadn't sold out this shit for the series this year. So I don't know if really, yeah, there were still a lot to it because I think a lot of people were frustrated with the pricing and how it was expensive. And they were, cause there was a lot of people were buying the, the $40 or 40 pound tickets and then going to sit in that, in that 800 pound seat. So, 
we would never do a lot of stories about guys doing that. So, uh, so I think a lot. I mean, people were buying, waiting on the secondary market. There, I was kind of, I was doing the same thing myself. Kind of say I was wait for the secondary market because uh, people, you had all the flippers that were buying stuff early and then just want to take any money they could. So, yeah. uh, I was still watching up that, and they, um, they, they hadn't sold out. They were really struggling with that. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the Yankees and Red Sox. It was at least uh, school term was over back in the states. So I ran into a lot of American fans that happened to be over going, great, this is the first leg of my holiday, and then I'm going to explore Europe. Um, whereas yes. this one, was, there were still about two weeks left on schools, so I don't think people were taking their kids out the last two weeks of school to go on and start it a, uh, um, a little bit early there. So, um, so but it's interesting. I was watching my eye on to see if they would do that or not. Uh, I, you know, I would love for it to come over this way again, um, but I don't know if they'll actually do it or not. Yeah, yeah, I suppose um, the only real stadiums in terms of capacity would be somewhere like Murrayfield in Edinburgh and and um, Hamden or the Celtic and Rangers in Glasgow but the the actual dimensions of the field might not be big enough I think because London Stadium was an athletics track. If they feel like building a dome stadium that we can use when I die I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't think the, uh, the O2 Arena in Glasgow is quite big enough for <laughs> Take a baseball game. So one thing you probably didn't notice that me and a couple of guys that I went with to the games were, so you're supposed to have 45 feet between home plate and the backstop, and that was clearly much shorter than it was down there. Yeah. And so they really struggled to cram that thing in there. So uh, I, I don't know how much that came to play during the games or not. And then uh, um, obviously didn't have a lot of time to test it to see how the winds were, because I said uh, that first game was – it was a very long game. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> it was incredible. And talking about sitting in different seats, we managed to upgrade ourselves because people obviously, it was sold out, I think, but people, because the game was going on for nearly five hours, they were leaving and uh, we said, well, why don't we go for a wee wonder and see? But it was a great and incredible experience. And so, Jason, do you think you talked about kind of Paris and Berlin you think MLB is really serious then about that European expansion? Because you keep hearing that, that possibly the fan base in the US might be might be declining a bit as time goes by. So do you think they really see Europe as kind of fertile ground for expansion? I think they've looked over at what the NBA and NFL have done and they've gotten their footholds in there. I mean, they've been talking about having a game over here since at least 2006, I remember so to see it actually happen was amazing. Um, the, the thing is, is you look at UK baseball, and it's a very small compared to when you go to Europe. I mean, uh, you head over to the mainland, and it, baseball is big in Italy, Germany, France, the Netherlands. Um, so you, it's much bigger over there. And I would have thought they would probably go that way to see if they expand. Um, funny enough, I was watching a game in Germany, I met one of the coaches, and they actually have like live TV for the highest level of their baseball games there. And it's actually up a really good standard. So, you've obviously experienced Scottish life for for seventeen years, um, and, and you've got the four of us getting into to baseball and, and picking up a bit on American sports. Have, have you, in your seventeen years, experienced the the wonders and beauty of Scottish football? 
<laughs> I do. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm a, by default, I'm a Greenock Morton fan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, my buddy out here was one, and so he took me along the game. So, uh, uh, so yeah, we've been to a, a few football matches. Cool. So, you, um, how does how does going to a football game in in the UK? How do you, as a, a seasoned baseball fan, find the the experience of watching a, a football game here? Uh, you know, I, it was completely different because, uh, as you guys know, you've been to the games. Like, you can go to a baseball game, you have no idea what's actually going on. Because you're so entertained mm. with what's going on with the scoreboard, yeah. and and that was uh, that there. So I was kind of when I went to the first game, they're like, all right. You got a meat pie and you got bob roll. <laughs> that's, that's your entertainment for the game. And you know, you, you, you grow to love it that way and go, all right, that's what it's going to be. You're going to have some fun. And I'm going, where's the hot dogs? Where's the beer? And he's like, no, don't do that. That fancy stuff here. <laughs> Did you then get on to asking, where's the entertainment? I, you know, I, I, I got into football um, in 2002 with the World Cup. Uh, the yeah. St. Francisco that got me over here. We started talking trash about the World Cup, and I'm being naive, I said, "Oh, America's the best. We're gonna win this thing." <laughs> Not having any idea how bad we were at football, uh, and so she sucked me up. So I ended up watching a lot of games, but like the morning <laughs> when we were doing really good, uh, and then I've been to a couple of World Cups now because of it. Yeah, that's cool. Brilliant, brilliant, fantastic. And in many ways, you've made the opposite journey from us. Then, Jason, you were a baseball fan by birth and upbringing. And now you've learned to, to really enjoy football as well, or as much as a Morton fan can really enjoy football. But it's uh, as we've kind of approached it from the opposite <laughs> end, where we we've got that football background, but we've come to find so much about baseball that we love as well. And I have to say, we found the experience at the London series with the the catering, the entertainment, slightly above the average Scottish football match. I think it's fair to say, <laughs> just a wee bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Morton's a good choice as well. One, one of um, one of my daughters, she's got, a, she's got a friend actually signed for Morton at the back end of last season. He was uh, he, he played for Partick, but he's uh, at Morton. So I don't know when we'll we'll get around to playing again and what's going to happen next season. So um, I'll, I'll keep an extra eye on him there as well and think. think <laughs> yeah, it. let me know because my buddy Aberdeen has to come down and take me out to the game. So it's a it's one of those rare things. You get the free weekend. He comes on down. We go catch a match. We'll, we'll, we'll sort. We'll sort something out once we once we've got the batting practice sorted as well. So we good, <laughs> good stuff. So you obviously in your, your time in Scotland as well. Uh, people will, will ask you about your about your background. You've you've come to Scotland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How how do Scottish people react when you tell them you're a you're a baseball man? Yeah, <laughs> usually they go. I didn't realize there's baseball here. Um, and then it's the same thing there, I go, okay, uh, think about it when you're in the States, it's like, if you're going to play cricket, there'll be cricket out there. You just never actually seen it. That yeah. So, so I usually just do that there. Um, like I'm always wearing some, a hat or a Jersey, usually both at all times there, just to start up a conversation with people there. So I can't tell many people, um, that wear a Montreal Expo stuff. Um, people will stop me and go, oh, I love the Expos. I'm so better than the Nationals now. And just have these random conversations with people there, yeah. uh, and then with the with the locals, they're always like, "All oh, right, yeah, I went to saw a game in New York or Boston or Florida because they they wanted to have that real American experience and see what what the hype was about baseball." And then the UC go, "I didn't understand any of it." <laughs> <laughs> it, it it's a good point about wearing gear because we we've probably all got bit, bits and pieces, and I think um, we, we probably for 
other reasons because of the, the parochial world we live in Scotland. We tend not to wear soccer gear, although somebody's got a Sterling Albion top on in the in the podcast tonight, as I see. Um, Dave Senior actually made the comment to me. I was lucky enough, went to opening day, saw the Tigers and the, the Pirates, and then I was on a train outside London about a year ago, um, and, I, and I texted Dave Senior and said, oh, there's a guy opposite me with a Pirates cap on the train and he made the point that if you've got a Pirates cap on you probably are into baseball if, if you had a Yankees hat on it's a wee bit different but if you've gone for uh, gone for one of the other ones it's, it's, it's good conversation you you like look like you've got a fairly full complement of most teams and probably into the minor leagues as well not, not as much uh, I, I think I have close to 100 hats now and um uh, my jersey collection is probably about forty or fifty deep. I haven't, I haven't looked lately. <laughs> so uh, at first it was just kind of vibrating my hands on, it, and then it was like, all right. So like, uh, you can't see it tonight, but it's a Brooklyn Dodgers uh, Jackie Robinson jersey. Brilliant. And then uh, with the hat, it's a nineteen ninety nine uh, LA Dodgers hat that they wore for like one season. So I, I'm more trying to find the obscure pieces now mm-hmm. than just a little bit of everything. Yeah. Talk about obscure. I, I came across one of the items in the shop, the Savannah Bananas. Yeah. <laughs> what a great team. What a great name. Yeah, I mean, gosh, they popped out of nowhere, rebranded, and said, all right, we're going to call ourselves the Savannah Bananas. And I was like, that's when I saw that. I picked that thing up, said, somebody's going to want a Savannah Banana shirt. <laughs> um, and it's really fun. Like, the minor leagues has gotten a lot, a lot of fun now. So um, I have a, a couple of uh, uh, Fresno Grizzly uh, hats, and and then they do Taco Thursdays, and they said so they go to the Fresno Tacos, and so I have these taco hats that I wear around. And people are always like, "Why are you wearing a taco hat? You you really like tacos that much?" <laughs> <laughs> I think a Scottish team could rebrand themselves as the something haggis potentially. That may work. <laughs> you know, somebody actually suggested that when we were trying to think of the, what we wanted to call the national team, and uh, somebody said we should call ourselves the Fighting Haggis. Like, yeah, I, I, I get you trying to be funny, but that's not going to fly very well. Maybe we can uh, try and help you and come up with some uh, suggestions. For, Maybe invite the listeners to do that. Yeah, absolutely. We're always taking suggestions. We, we, currently, the, the men's team and the women's team don't have a name. The women were called unicorns previously, uh, and they decided they didn't want to go with unicorns and uh, find something else. So uh, currently, both teams are unnamed. All right. We'll have to see if we can try and get some decent suggestions for you then. We'll invite listeners to do that. Jason, do you mind if I dig a little bit uh, into your kind of own background in the playing side of things as well? Can you tell us a little bit in terms of your baseball playing, what position you would play and stuff like that? Uh, so I, I was usually, uh, like yourself, I can't throw very hard either. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I... I'm basically known for having a rubber arm, so I, I would pitch uh, sometimes for both teams. <laughs> that there. Uh, and yeah, I was just, uh, I, I grew up as a first baseman pitcher, um, kind of played more of a back end kind of guy. We, I played, uh, my team won our, 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 our city and came in sixth in league, uh, our sixth in state. Um, and and I, I saw a lot of bench time there. <laughs> we had a lot of very good guys on our team, a um, couple guys that made the minor leagues. So, uh, I, I knew from the start that you see these guys that actually played the high school level that were just far and above what I could ever do. Um, I, I knew I'd probably be kind of more of a, a role player like that there. And then coming to Scotland, I hadn't played in eight years. I probably had picked up a ball 
three or four times or something like that there. Uh, yeah, it took me a few months to get back from the swing of things there, and I was just happy to play. And literally, my mom had to go to Walmart and find a glove and send it over so I could start throwing, playing catch with everybody. And uh, yeah, I was just happy to be on the field for the first couple of seasons. And then I, because I was traveling, I didn't really have a whole lot. I went from playing to managing, and then a few years later, I ended up um, being the league president and then ran the league for a good 10 years. One thing I wanted to ask you was, as, as football fans, we grew up and you'd find one player as a kid and they became your hero, but usually the star player of the team. Did you have a, a, a hero, a baseball hero growing up? Oh, absolutely. There, there's quite a few. So uh, probably my first one was Mark McGuire because uh, he hit 49 home runs in 87. And it was just, uh, I was starting to watch a lot of baseball then. And then I was lucky enough to watch Ken Griffey Jr. for five years with the Mariners. Uh, but, you know, my, my favorite player was probably Tony Gwynn uh, for the Padres just because uh, uh, he was just probably uh, the best pure hitter I've ever seen. You know, he wasn't getting a whole, whole lot of home runs, but, you know, he would bat 370 with no problems. So, you know, if you can hit 370, you're doing something right. Some great names in there. And in, the, in the present day MLB then, Jason, from your very much expert view, who are the best players in MLB at the moment? I, I think you say Mike Trout, hands down. I mean, you can't say... You can't really argue. I mean, he's putting up one of these seasons, uh, or not seasons, one of these careers that you just have nothing comparable to. I mean, you look at Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth and Ken Griffey Jr., and, and you, you're talking about top 10 guys, you know, uh, Willie May, same idea. So, yeah, um, Mike Trout, uh, I'm, I'm really watching uh, Shohei Itani. I, I like the fact that he's pitching and he's hitting. Um, that that's, takes a lot of talent there. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's a, the baseball level is so much higher than it was back in say the 80s and 90s when I started watching, you, know, you, you always had um, guys that were really good and then guys were on the field that maybe hit 200, 220. And now you see everyone hits 250 and they all have power. One last point on that then, Jason Cash, you, the current season that we're going through at the moment, which obviously is unique, the 60 games, and the, what do you make of that in terms of will the World Series champions be legitimate? And do you like the rule now, the designated hitter rule? being across both leagues, or did you like to see pitchers having to hit? I think it's a funny one. It's uh, it's going to be legitimate. I think whoever wins it, whether it's the Mariners, the White Sox, or the Tigers, you got to take it while you can. <laughs> you know, you, you, you'll take any championship you can hang up in there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just going to be one of these asterisk seasons where you just kind of go, it, it is what it is. You know, you, you can't take it away from the guys if it's in 60-game or 162-game season. You know, I'm more of kind of curious about how it will work if anyone hits over 400. And that's the one that, if they count that as a 400 season or not, because it's so short. I, I, this is a bit of an in-joke here, Jason, but the guys and the listeners will get this. Uh, Dave Senior, can you think of anyone who's hit 400 in, in history or the most recent one to do that? But anyone from the Boston Red Sox? <laughs> all-time favourite Ted Williams yeah. Be- because Dave Senior is the most knowledgeable amongst us Jason he does the quiz that we do we do every show as well and you'd be amazed how many questions you can ask where the correct answer will turn out to be Ted Williams <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us on the Highland Bullpen we're also featuring on all the usual social media channels Twitter Instagram and Facebook just search for the Highland Bullpen. On Twitter, our handle is at H-B-U-L-L-P-E-N, at H-Bullpen. 
at Instagram, it's Highland underscore bullpen. And Facebook is quite simply the Highland Bullpen. We've also got our email address, highlandbullpen at gmail.com. We really appreciate those of you who've got in touch, asking questions. We are here to learn ourselves and we're here to help you guys learn as well. So feel free to contact us and follow us on any of those channels. Thank you. Yes, it's time for the seven defining stretch quiz again, but this week we're going to do something different. It's not every week you get to have a Baseball Scotland Hall of Famer on board, so rather than the bullpen bros competing against each other, we're going to test out Jason's knowledge of baseball trivia. Do you actually know who the, the last player was that hit closest to 400? Mm, no. No, when you mentioned Tony Glenn, I thought he was sort of uh, quite quite close, wasn't he? Uh, he batted uh, 390 or 390, it was 394. Um, so he was there. And then there was another guy, John Oliver, who batted 390 back in, uh, I want to say, 97, 98. But the only reason I mentioned him is because we went to the same high school, although he was right. eight years older than me. <laughs> Really? <laughs> he played for the Red Sox for one he season. Did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He must have been an all-time high school hero then, I would imagine, Jason, at your high school. He was quite the legend. Like we, I, I saw him once take batting practice on our, our field there, and he just demolished baseballs like I'd never seen before. So. <laughs> Dave, would you like to try and test Jason out? I think you need, you're going to need your best fastball here, I think, maybe a slider. And so it's much easier being the quiz, asking the questions than it is uh, answering them. Uh, last week, we did some questions on baseball terminology. This time, I was going to ask a few about baseball parts, and they were going to be perhaps too basic for your good self, like who plays at Camden Yards. And, right. uh, I guess you're going to know those sort of things. So I've got a couple of ones where you can take a swing at. Um, and I hesitate to ask this, but I had it written down as a, a Red Sox fan. Uh, about and this would be a triple question. This would get you three bases. If you got right. the green monster at Fenway, <laughs> would you have any idea how high it is that the wall in left field is referred to as the, the green monster? I think they've now got even got seats on the top of it. Um, but have you any idea? Is this an unfair question? I, I, yeah. I, I want to say it's forty-three feet. Well, that is extremely close. It's <laughs> a little bit higher, a little bit lower than that. Right. This is maybe 41. I want to say it was like... Well, my information, tell me, most of my stuff I get from Wikipedia and maybe sometimes corroborate it with uh, looking elsewhere on MLB sites, but 37.2 feet. Right, okay. So, yeah, I think that's uh, an acceptable uh, leeway. <laughs> Seems a the other thing I was going to ask the, the guys as well was, which I, I find this pretty amazing, but the other, I think, is sort of equally the oldest ballpark, uh, Wrigley Field. They, until relatively recently, I think they played, they didn't play night games, did they? They were quite late in putting in their uh, floodlights. So, again, would you have any idea as to when they finally switch them on and 
had their first night game at Rigby Field. And how many bulbs are in? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I definitely know it's 1988, and I want to say it's... Like June 25th, 1988. Oh, wow. I didn't actually put down the date. But yeah, 1988 is spot on. Yeah. I, I didn't expect anyone to know the actual date. But. Uh, yeah, no, because I've used that for my history thing. So I've used that one before. Cause, uh, really? And I know it's just come up recently, so I can't remember if it was in... Was it, was it something to do with the centenary year or something like that? No, it was the the residents didn't want lights on at night because uh, have you guys been to Wrigley? Have you been to Wrigley yet? Yeah. Yes, I yeah I've been there. Yeah. All right. So previously you had all the residents living there and they didn't want any night things going on there. So mm-hmm. it, it took them a good oh, ten or twelve years of legal battles to finally be able to get twelve games a year there, and then it slowly increased from there. And of course, now you go to Wrigley, everything's all about being at the ballpark down there. Um, mm. But back in the 80s, you had a lot of drunk people on the bleachers out there, and they didn't really want people spilling out, thinking that if they were there during the day, coming home drunk, if they were there at night, they would be destroying the neighborhood. And of course, it's not the case anymore. But oh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that. I sort of thought that perhaps it was tradition, but it wasn't really. It was down to, they wanted to do it before. 1988, but it was the residents who were blocking it. Yeah, if you look at some of the older Cubs games, you'll see people taking naps in the bleachers. That's where um, we went to see the game. We were in the bleachers, and it was really busy. It was an early season game. And I was actually quite surprised. I don't know. I expected, I'd heard of the friendly confines. I don't don't think that's got anything to do with the fans in the bleachers. (laughs) Anything but Friendly to the opposition team. Were you wearing your Red Star stuff there? No. no I, had a, I, a Cubs, I bought a Cubs hat, which I've still got. And right. I was wearing that. But no, they were friendly enough to, to me. I got on great with them. But they were actually um, giving some stick. I think they were playing the White Sox, actually. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it must have. Would it have been? Into the game. Anyway, whoever they were playing, there was the centre fielder who kept making mistakes. Right. They were really giving him stick. And the one thing that I remember from it, they actually took him out of the game and they brought on this a rookie player. And I heard some of the guys looking at the scoreboard, hey, who's this guy? I never heard of him. And then he made a mistake. And then this is where they started chanting. I'm not kidding. Triple A. Triple A, and I, you know, I thought that was incredibly cruel. I, I think when you're out in the bleachers, it can be uh, quite rough out there. So you know, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that's why it's the friendly guys out there because you get heckled pretty good out there. <laughs> it was fun. It was good fun, right? But... Yeah, no, I mean, I did the same thing. I went for my 40th birthday, and uh, that was the one thing I wanted to do was go see Wrigley Field, and, and we did the same thing. We're in the bleachers. And uh, yeah, it, it was a it was a big party out there. That's for sure. <laughs> Definitely, the uh, plenty of beer being drunk. <laughs> and now it's time for the first in a new feature on the Highland Bullpen, Junior's Journal, where Dave Junior takes us through some of the offbeat happenings in the last week in the world of baseball. 
uh, one day over the weekend, 20 games were played in one day, which I believe is the most since 1974. Again, just another, I know Dave and Alan both like their stats. Um, it's a, Again, it perhaps dates back to COVID, but I think 20 games in the one day, you're looking at teams playing multiple games. Over in LA, Trout managed to go level with Salmon for the Angels' all-time home run lead, which, again, I thought was quite interesting. Is that official? <laughs> oh, I like your uh, school of thought there. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next thing, there's something that happened during a White Sox game the other day. Uh, Incarnacion hit the ball twice in one motion and there was quite a bit of dubiety over what happened. The commentary team didn't know um, what the rule was. The umps didn't pick it up. So it was one of those things that they had to go delving. But he basically hit it twice to a home run. Mm. Um, it's just, you can see it when you slow it down, but it's it's absolutely, he's, he's connected. Is it accidental? Yeah. Just in the motion of, uh, yeah. Yeah, so he's hit it once, maybe lowered down towards the hands on the bat. Yeah. And then followed through. Um, again, for everyone that's just listening to this on audio, you can't see my fantastic technique there. It's just like um, being there, though. You can take a word from it. Just like being yeah. there. <laughs> it's just like it. Fascinating um, that they were they were wondering about the rule there because um, the the rules of golf last year changed to discuss a double hit. You could quite easily if you're if you're chipping, particularly in a bunker, you see a lot of people who chip, follow through, and hit the ball twice, and you would count that as two strokes. Uh, so effectively, a form of penalty. But now in the game, <clears throat> in the game of golf, now it would be considered as a one stroke unless it was considered to be de- deliberate, in which case a deliberate, you're going to get a, a sterner penalty. There's a similar rule in, in cricket, which I think is 100% straightforward, but you're not supposed to hit the ball, tw- the batsman's not supposed to hit the ball twice in cricket, and you can be dismissed if you hit the ball twice with your bat. Um, the, other, the other two things that I kind of noticed is organ music a staple of baseball? In oh, you only, you only have to refer to the Highland Bullpen's fantastic theme tune to, <laughs> to recognise that, Dave Junior. So yes, very much so. I, I was again. I'm trying to broaden my horizons past the White Sox. I didn't broaden them very much. It was, it was a Cubs game I was watching, <laughs> um, but the Cubs were playing St. Louis last night, and th- there was a hold up while they went to video in New York, and it felt a lifetime of organ music and the guy was playing popular music hits um, all sorts but it was just you know it was god awful and I hate it but I feel like the, I might be offending some uh, industry of organ players throughout the MLB but I find it god awful uh, I like organ music in small doses but this was 15 minutes um, and the other thing was this this week is the 25 year anniversary of Cal Ripken's record breaking consecutive game streak <clears throat> so uh, it's something that is out there to watch there's a good I think you can watch the entire game on YouTube I know that BT Sport have showed the, the entire game recently I think it was perhaps in the late 90s but there's one and two interesting points about this so the previous record had been 2,130 consecutive games at Lou Gehrig and uh, Cal Ripken not only you know, beat it but he went on to add another 500 games on top of that. And just when they were talking about that instance, watching that game, watching the crowd reaction, so at the time he was with Baltimore, watching the crowd's reaction, 
that wasn't just a 10 second standing ovation, the old standing O. They were applauding that man while he done lap after lap. And it, you know, it makes you fall in love with another baseball team. The way that those fans treated him, the way that the opposition treated him, I think it says a lot about baseball. You would never get that in other sports for someone that's just done that against your team. Um, I know it wasn't directly against his team. It's, a, it's an achievement across the sport. But I thought that was beautiful. And if you can ever watch it, please do. Um, and one last note about Cal Ripken's record. I think at present, just to show you how that stacks up, 2,632. The most in the MLB at present is around 70. Um, the fifth highest was, I think, 18 or 19 games in a row. So the guys that play in the modern era, it's just it, it's a completely different game, but it just shows you someone like Cal Ripken, over 2,500 consecutive games, night after night, year after year. It's quite an achievement. Cal Ripken, one of the iron men of baseball. So there you have it. Episode 7 of your Highland Bullpen Baseball Podcast is in the books. Thanks again to Jason Dare for taking part. Please do check out ball caps and bagpipes as well as dugoutclassics.com. Until next week, on behalf of myself and all the other bullpen bros, and of course Hamish, have a great week, share, follow, and we will see you next week.